As we begin this morning, I want to ask you this question. I promise you I will ask it at the end of the sermon as well. And I hope that somewhere between now and the end of the sermon and the question that is asked in both places, you're willing to go to a better place in your answer. The question is, where do you live? The reality is for us, I think that uh, we often live in different places depending on who we talk to. It's, It's not really that we live in different places. It's that our answer comes out as if we do. For instance, when we're surrounded by people from this immediate vicinity, whether it's Kuntz or Lumberton or somewhere in this nice little tight community, if somebody in that group were to ask you, where do you live? The tendency that you have would probably be to give them a pretty precise answer. Like I live at such and such an address in Lumberton, or I live between Lumberton and Kuntz, and if you take the third row past the fourth cow, uh, you'll find my house. But if you're in Beaumont at a business lunch and somebody says, where do you live? You're likely to say, well, I live outside of Kuntz or I live in Lumberton. That's a much more general kind of an answer. If you find yourself in a foreign country like Louisiana and somebody says, where do you live? You might say, well, I'm from Texas. First John chapter 2. I think that our answer to where you live might very well be a revealing thing about our spiritual realities. Maybe not in the way that I just laid that out for you, but clearly there is a place that we should live that, um, well, it's maybe a challenge for us in the Christian life. We started this study of 1 John several weeks ago, and we find ourselves now taking another step into this basic question of how to determine and how to be sure that you have eternal life. So many Christians, in my experience, have struggled with assurance of salvation that I think it is a great thing for us to spend a little time in. As a matter of fact, not only do I think it's a great thing, but apparently... John, the apostle, the writer of the gospel of John and the writer of the epistle we call 1 John, believed it was important enough that one of the four stated purposes of this little letter was, as we saw last week, chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Before we get to the text for the day, I want to make sure that we're kind of on the same page. I'm going to lay a few truths out for us. And I want us to hang on to those truths and then we'll fill in with what John has to say and actually we'll let John inform those truths for us. And as I started to call this sermon, uh, what I may write a book eventually, what I learned about the Christian life from my dog. Um, So we'll get to that in just a second. But here's a truth that I want you to get. We all live inside of some environment. You see a picture here of the casing, the bubble, if you will, the protected environment that was used, or at least theoretically, I guess it was, we we were told that it was used to transport Ebola patients from Africa 
to the United States so that they could get the care that they need. And so, as I understand it, those people, those people who were victims of this, medical aid workers who were over in Africa trying to help those people who had Ebola, who contracted it themselves, were placed into something like this, if not this specifically. And their whole lives then became lived out in that bubble, if you will, in that environment. Even though that environment for them was placed in a plane and it moved them from one continent to another, their whole world was locked inside of that device. We all live in some kind of of an environment. Here's another picture for you. This is my dog. This is Nanook. He's really... Technically, he's not my dog. I think I've told most of you before. My daughter-in-law, before she was my daughter-in-law, uh, got somehow came to own this dog and talked her boyfriend, my son, into keeping this dog, who then, when he went off to work and went off to school, somehow this dog stayed with me even after I moved. And so Nanook is my dog. And Nanook provides a great example for us. I'm going to walk through several elements of this as we work through, but I wanted you to have a picture of him. And I don't know if you can see well enough in the picture or not, but Nanook lives in an environment also. He's much like us in that there are parameters to this particular environment. There is a fence behind him and a fence to his left. And if you could see my entire backyard, you would see that there are fences on all four sides, which means that the environment in which Nanook lives is my backyard. As far as he knows, that is his world. He acts like it's his world most of the time. But here's the point. We all live, dogs, people, whatever, we all live within an environment. And by now, some of you are going, yeah, yeah, okay, so Let me just stay with me long enough to get what I'm saying. The reality is that we live in many different environments that are one within another. For instance, whether you live Kuntz or Lumberton or somewhere between or somewhere in this area, that means that you live in this area. That's your environment. Maybe the... the, uh, parameters and the borders are not all that easy to see in some of that. You live in your home, even though you don't stay in your home all the time. That's your home. The very definition of the word makes us think of this is my safe place. But your home or your community is within another set of boundaries that we have arbitrarily marked out, maybe not so arbitrarily, it just seems like it. We live in the state of Texas. But that's not enough because actually you can explode that a little further and you can say that we live in the United States of America. But here's one, because everybody doesn't live in those parameters, here's one that pulls us all on the planet into the same boat. The parameters of the environment in which we all live is the atmosphere of the earth. Unless you're an astronaut. And then you can get outside of that atmosphere. But there are still parameters even at that point. As we work our way through this, reality is that all of us live within some kind of an environment. All of life happens within that environment. If you're the bubble boy, then you live your life out inside of a bubble. 
That's what we call your world. Now, here's one of the realities for us. It's important that we get this on the front side. The world that you live in, that limited environment that you live out your life in, can be expanded. In other words, that environment in which you live, the parameters around your life that you have erected, that you live within those things, whether it's a set of rules or it's a value of life or some morals that you tie to, that set of boundaries that you live in can be expanded. Let me give you a physical example of that. Teresa and I experienced this yesterday. You guys, if you happen to have forgotten, it's too late now, but yesterday was Valentine's Day. And so yesterday, uh, Teresa and I were talking about what we're going to do for Valentine's Day, and uh, we decided to go to Kima. How many of you have been to Kima before? And you didn't warn us. We'd never been over there. And so we decided that that would be a good place to go. Uh, I tried to make reservations for dinner around here. and There was no place open except Taco Bell. And I knew better than take her there for Valentine's Day. And so we loaded up and took off and went to Kima yesterday, middle of the day. We expanded our territory. The environment in which we live got a little bit bigger because we went to a place that we had not been before and waited 40 minutes to go two miles to get to parking. But I know. And so next time, we'll go a different way or we'll go somewhere else, whatever the case may be. You learn as you go. We saw, many of you saw our daughter, Lauren, who in January, for the first time ever, went abroad She'd been into Mexico before when we lived down there, but this was the first time that she'd ever been like away from the United States, and she loaded up on a plane with her new husband, and they went all the way to Cairo, Egypt, and spent a week there. And so we vicariously watched and lived out with her this experience of a new culture and a new place, and everything was different. Her world got bigger there. All of the life is lived out in an environment. We have the opportunity to expand that environment. But here's another truth that goes with it. As we age, our environment tends to get smaller. Our world shrinks on us. Nursing homes in this area are full of people who once were active and able to pick up and go whenever they wanted to, wherever they wanted to. But now because of age, because of disease, because of whatever else, their world has shrinked, shrunk, has diminished down to a room in a building. So where do you live? As you take into consideration this large sweep of the world in which we live in, understanding that you get a choice as to the environment in which you live. You can make choices that either expand or pull down or stagnate your life. What is the environment in which you have chosen to live? And with that in mind, I want us to go to this passage of Scripture. All of those things are going to come into play more now as we move forward. But as we come to this text, I want to nail down with you 
How is it that you have chosen to build parameters or borders or fences in your life and those are the things that cause you to say, okay, this is home for me, this is my world. Here's kind of a presupposition that I have coming into this passage. The reality is that many Christian people adopt a lifestyle that is called Christian but it is little more than a Christian ethic. I'm going to explain that as we go forward, but I want to just leave that hanging out there with you for just a moment. Is it possible that the boundaries that you've thrown up, that you say, that's my home, as Christian as it looks, actually is a step removed from the Christian life? Let's look at what he says here in this passage in John, first, excuse me, first John chapter 2, we come into this where John is discussing with these people something about the false teaching and the false teachers that have pressed upon them. One of the things that we will find as we move forward is that John in this passage is talking about one of the ways that you can be sure that you are a child of God is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the sermon that I planned on preaching today, but the more and the deeper I got into that preparation, the more I decided it was really critical that we get the fundamental piece of his argument here. And his argument about us being able to be taught by the Holy Spirit, Baptists call that the priesthood of the believer. In order for us to really get that, we have to get that kernel of truth that he builds that on. And so we're going to talk about this idea of abiding in Christ. We find it in this passage. I begin reading in verse 23, 1 John chapter 2. And understand I'm picking it up towards the tail end of his argument, but we'll get to the fuller picture of that next time, which won't be next week, but the week after. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let, uh, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will, be, uh, will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. He's saying to you, you can know that you are saved, that you are a child of God. You can have assurance of your eternal security. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. It's an interesting statement since John is in fact teaching them. But his point is because you have the anointing that is the Holy Spirit within you, I don't have to teach you. It's not that teaching you is bad or wrong. In fact, Paul will tell us that it's very beneficial But his point is that one of the evidences that we have of being his is the Holy Spirit teaches us himself. Now, having said that, in the middle now, verse 27, he says this, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. If that's not enough for you, we go to verse 28, and he begins to change his thought a little bit, and he says, and now, little children, abide in him. In him. What is John driving at? The fact of the matter is that if you wonder and if you question whether you're really saved or not, 
So many people in my experience as a minister of the gospel, so many fine Christian people struggle with nailing down, do I really belong to Christ or not? What John is saying to us here is that if you're connected with him, well, I don't really want to say it that way. I think the way I want to say it is abiding in Christ is a crucial component to having that assurance. When you are connected, he uses it this way, when you abide in Christ, there comes with that this assurance that you don't get when you just adopt a Christian set of ethics, a Christian set of rules, a Christian tag on your name. This is much deeper than just doing the Christian thing. I asked a guy one time who has, who's not from this area, but he was ministering in this area. I'm talking about Southeast Texas. And uh, the question kind of gravitated to, what did you see there? Based on where you live and as you come back in to this particular environment, what do you see about Southeast Texas that would help us pastors? You know what his comment was? He says, I have seen many people in Southeast Texas who know the Christian answers, but they've never had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now that should concern us just a little bit, because what we come into then is this question, have we opted for a culture that looks Christian, or are we Christian in our culture? Big difference. And so John comes to this idea of abiding in Christ, and he lays it out, and he puts it in front of his people, and it's worth us taking just a moment before we get to a whole nother sermon about hearing the Holy Spirit and what's involved with all of that. Let's make sure that we get the fundamental right, and that is, are you abiding in Christ? Where do you live, really? What are the parameters around which you have rallied in your life? Let me go back to my dog for a minute. Many Christian people, who, for many Christian people, abiding in Christ really is reduced down to a Christian ethic. It's just doing Christian stuff and not doing unchristian stuff. Last week I made the point that we cannot reduce the kingdom of God just to a way of living. So here's Nanook again, not so much in picture. But I take you back to that picture. Now, that's Pixie. That's Teresa's dog. So I want you to just hang on to that a minute. I want to let that. And if you're thinking, look, Rotraman, you need to pressure wash your fence. Okay, I know that. All right, it's great. I got that. Before I get to Pixie, I want to, I want to come back to Nanook for a minute. Because there's a lot that I learned from him about living out the Christian life. And part of it is, you know, remember what I said. Nanook is confined to the backyard. There are fences that... Mark off his world. Here's where I think he's a lot like us. Okay, like me. If I take that dog analogy as part of my Christian experience, I can run free in the parameters of the Christian life that God has given me, and I can label myself Christian, and I can live according to the Christian ethic, and I can do certain things and not do other things. 
and may very well be Christian in that and still live within the boundaries but live a very selfish life. Here's how my dog does that. Okay, this, now, now this dog that you see is Teresa's dog. Okay? You know how that works with your kids, right? When you, they do something great, you're proud of them, that's my son. Okay? But when he you know, twists off, well, that's his mama's son. That's, you know, that's how that goes. So um, Nanook uh, has this tendency to be a dog, and that just eats me up sometimes. Okay? Especially when about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, something happens that threatens the peace of the entire world, or at least his entire world. And so middle of the night, he just starts going off barking. Now, some of you I know, uh, if your neighbor's dog did that, you would have one of those silencers. Um, But this is my dog, okay, at least until he starts that barking. Now, here's the deal. From my side of it, now, he lives in the road trammel yard. You would think that he would live by the road trammel rules, wouldn't you? You know what's wrong with that? That whole line of thinking? He's a dog, and he's a selfish dog at that. And so in this environment, in this world that we have created for him, and we place him in it, and we say to him, you can have the whole yard. It's yours to do what you want. There are some things that we expect from you, though. One of them is don't bark at 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't care what it is. If there's a triceratops coming in, just keep him at bay until we get up. But that's not how it works. And so he goes off and he's barking. He's very selfish that way. Here's another thing that he does. Very doggish of him. Now, for me, this is where I go, that's my dog. (laughs) Good boy, good boy. And that is occasionally he'll chase birds or squirrels and sometimes he catches one. And when he does the dog thing to a bird or a squirrel, he brings what's left of the bird or the squirrel to our back porch and lays it down there. And I say, good boy, man's dog. Teresa, on the other hand, has no use for dead squirrels or dead birds. And so this part of Nanook is now intention. What do I do? Because the dog part of me says, chase them, kill them, and show them to your master. How often do we take that same approach with God and this thing we call the Christian life? Where we understand God has said to us, here are the parameters of the life that I have for you. And yet we take that selfish part of who we are into the midst of that and we try to reduce the Christian life to what we want it to be. Let me get real practical with you. We bring things that are very un-Jesus into the Jesus life. Like hatred. Like pride. Like division between his children. Like kingdoms that we build for ourselves and those that we care about. 
and wars that erupt when our kingdoms come under attack by other kingdoms. It's very doggish of us, don't you think? That Jesus has said to us, here is the life that I have for you. In fact, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now John is saying to us, as you know him, abide in him. In other words, if you go back to the pictures that I've tried to lay in your mind here, the parameters of our lives go back to that Ebola victim thing. But in this case, we step into the life that is Christ's life. John says, abide in him. And it makes no sense for us to take those pieces of us that are very un-Jesus-like and drag them into his life. Matter of fact, the reality is he won't let us do that. That's why I asked you when we started, where do you live? Because the reality is he will accept you as you are, but he never will let you stay there. In the Christian life, if it's anything at all, it is a journey towards being like Jesus Christ. And yet it's so easy for us to reduce the Christian life to just a set of do's and don'ts, a culture, if you will. And so we hang crosses in our houses. I'm not complaining about that. We have an entire wall that's crosses in our house. I think it's a good thing because when I walk past it, it reminds me that my life is not my own. And then I walk right past them into the parameters that I want to create for my life, which means if I'm mad at somebody, I don't really want to have to talk to them. If they've hurt me, I'll just destroy their character I mean, I wouldn't do that, but some people might. So now we go to this picture of Pixie. What I've said up to this point is many of us build our house and we live in a world that is Christian in name, but maybe not necessarily Christian. And for many Christians... Christianity means a set of ethics that includes an occasional visit to Jesus. Nanook does that too. Yesterday morning before we went to Kima, uh, Teresa and I sat out in the backyard, built a fire in a fire pit, and we were sitting out there and just kind of enjoying ourselves. And this dog just, in, just continued to jump up in our life. Maybe it's because of the food that we were holding. Kind of doggish of him, isn't it, to just want food? I mean, after all, I'm the one who says to him, I'll fill up your bowl when it's time for you to eat. Apparently, when I forget, he goes after squirrels and birds. But when I take food out into his world, he has this idea that it's his food. And so I threw him into the fire. No, I didn't either. I I thought about it. In other words, like Nanook, Our Christianity is often very selfishly motivated. And so for us it becomes, we're going to live in this world that Jesus has said is ours. We're going to be selfish while we're in it. But every once in a while, like Nanook jumps up into my lap just because he wants me to scratch him behind his ears, we'll jump up into God's lap and say, hey, I need you now. But you know when we're done here, I'm going to go back to my life. I've learned a lot from my dog about what it is to be a Christian. Some of it's not too good. 
which points me to Pixie. Now, Pixie is the size of a loaf of bread if you step on the loaf of bread, okay? It's very, very small dog. And she goes to this place in the fence and looks beyond our yard into the neighbor's yard. And she'll go and she'll stand there at the fence just like that for hours at a time. Or sometimes she'll sit there and just kind of every once in a while look. And she's, she's looking through to the other side. And it reminds me a lot of how some of us fight that sin nature of ours. And even though Jesus has said, I give you life that you cannot even believe, we still get to the boundaries and we look through the slats of the fence into that life that the world offers out there and we longingly gaze out there for what could be. And a lot of us are like Nanook. I'll go back to him. Because one thing about Nanook, no matter how big the yard is, if the gate's open just a little bit, he's gone. I used to chase him, and I decided I'm the human in this equation. I'm not chasing a dog ever again. And he'll go run, and he'll do his thing. If we leave the gate open in an hour or two, he'll come running back. Sound anything like the Christian life that you've experienced? John says, abide in Christ. When we get out of the gate like that, when we get out into another part of the world that God never intended us to live in, we bring back mementos from that. You see in the news this week that Neil Armstrong's widow, he was the guy that walked on the moon first. You see that she found and tucked in the back of his closet now that he's dead. She found this toolkit from the moon. Now, my suspicion is that he probably wasn't supposed to have that. I rather suspect that NASA wanted Neil Armstrong to turn all of those things back in when they got back. But, see, he did an excursion that up to that point nobody else had done. And he wanted something to show for it. And here's the bad part for us. When we walk outside of the parameters of the life that Jesus Christ offers to us, we always bring back mementos from that wandering. And they come in the way of scars. And they come in the way of emotional distress. And they come in the way of broken relationships. And the reality is, Jesus said, I give you this life. These are the parameters for it. And when we bolt for the outside, we always get more than what we bargained for. It's one thing to say you're a Christian. Many times we say that we are in Christ and unfortunately our lives seem to dictate that we are deceiving ourselves. And so I come to close with this. As I said when we started into this, John is laying out these arguments and here he's arguing for assurance of salvation. And one of the ways he is saying to us that we could be sure that we are a child of God is that if we abide in him and we stop with the excursions and we make it our point in life to find fulfillment in him, abide in Christ. Where would John have gotten that idea? And the answer is found in John chapter 15, and I'll take you back there very quickly and then we'll be done. In John chapter 15, the first 10 verses, and I'm not going to take the time to read all of it, but in this section from 14 all the way through 17, we find Jesus as he pours himself out to these disciples. 
And he's about to go to the cross and he knows that once he goes to the cross, it won't be long before he's resurrected and then ascended back to heaven and the entire mission of God's love for the world will rest in the hands of these fishermen. And so Jesus just pours himself out to them in these final hours. And in John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Listen to what he says as I read further and all of these aren't on the slide, but I'll read very quickly. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In other words, he expects, it's, it's, it's not even an expectation, it's just a reality that as God lives out in you, there will be fruit. He says in verse 4, this is Jesus talking. And it hearkens us back to 1 John and the words of that fisherman years later as he's walked with Christ. He says, Jesus says in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. So as it turns out, John has plagiarized Jesus himself in a good way. When John says we should abide in him, he just mimics the command of Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I'll stop reading there to say this. There is a difference between having a Christian ethic and building your house, the parameters of your life, just the do's and the don'ts of a Christian culture. The difference between that and someone who abides in Christ is being connected to the vine. You can live a Christian kind of life and not be Christian. You can adopt a set of morals and values and ethical approach to life and still reject Jesus as who he is. But you cannot abide in him without experiencing not your life, but his. The beauty of what John is saying to us here is that abiding in Christ means that Christ's vitality flows through you. And the work of the Christian life is his, not mine. I still have to make choices, but the primary choice is to choose to say, I could just be Christian in a culture, or I could abide in him and let him live through me. So I started with this. I end with this. Where do you live? Let's pray. And as we do this, I want to first say that abiding in Christ starts with a decision to make him Lord of your life. Jesus, as we find all through Scripture, and as John points back to, came to this earth as Messiah. And in him, we find life. In him only, we find life. And if you don't know that life, if you've not experienced that, let me just say, we're not trying to sell some philosophy here. I'm not even trying to come up here and say, if you do this, your life will be better. It will, but that's not the selling point here. Reality is that only through Jesus do we get a relationship 
with a holy God. And in that relationship, we find true life, meaning, and fellowship with God himself. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, why would you even consider walking out today without getting that straight? Or at least start the conversation. And we'd love to at least have those conversations with you that begin to help you understand who Jesus is. I'm not trying to make you Baptist. I just want you to know life. Because I've lived on the other side of those fences. There's no way to live. Father, we come to you and we need you. And if we've opted for a Christian culture rather than abiding in Christ and making our home with you, we pray that you would show us as forcefully and yet as mercifully as possible. Pull aside those places in our lives that are blind spots for us where we've just done the Christian thing without any sense of Christian love in it. Help us to abide in you as our prayer in Christ's name. Move among us that your spirit, even now, would convict and draw and point people to your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.